We are continuing our look of why we're here, Bavista Baptist, or any church in any place. Why do we exist? And we're looking at ministry. Now, we're just in the second week, but there's something I'm going to tell you about this particular month of ministry. I'm not going to be doing a whole lot of looking at specific acts of ministry, Folks, we understand the kind of things that are supposed to be done, don't we? This month I'm looking at the heart. Because there's a disconnect between what we know we should be doing and what we're doing. And that, I believe, comes from the heart. So that's why uh, we're taking a little bit of different slant on this particular purpose for our existence. And today I begin with a slight warning about our text. As you already heard, as Natalie read it in 2 Timothy, it's three verses long. And you wouldn't think that three verses would cause much controversy, would you? This is an easy peasy thing. It's just three verses. But I'll let you know that if you were to grab ten different commentaries, looking at scholar what scholars have to see about these verses, you're going to find probably a minimum of five to six different interpretations. Folks have been disagreeing about this passage of Scripture for ages across denominational lines. Some will come to the first verse and say, well, I know what this is about. Paul is telling a parable a parable about the body of Christ. And what he's saying is there are people who have important jobs and there are people who have jobs that don't seem important, but everybody's important. Everybody has a place and everyone has to do their job. Well, folks, we can find that in Scripture, can't we? Particularly in the image of the body of Christ. Others say you have misunderstood that completely. Paul is saying that there are honorable vessels in the body which means there are godly people who know the Lord and then there are dishonorable, and he's got to be talking about the false teachers. And that's what this passage is about. And you need to get rid of the false teachers. You need to excommunicate them. Well, others will quickly point out a little bit later in the chapter we're looking at, Paul actually says, go to those false teachers and try to win them, which is kind of hard to do if you cut them off completely. So others will say, you've misunderstood it altogether. It is about uh, not false teachings, but false teachers. And on and on the arguments go, and people say, my interpretation is the rock solid has to be it. Now what I find somewhat amusing is all these people who spend their lives digging into the text, coming to such disagreement in one passage, when in 1977, a little hippie chick-looking thing called Janie Grime released the album Covenant Woman. It is still one of my favorite albums of contemporary Christian music of all time. There's so many of the songs in that album that folks the other day on YouTube, I found a place where they had them all, and I listened way later into the night that I should because I just got caught up 
One of the songs is entitled Sanctified Made Useful. Listen to what the lyrics say. Sanctified made useful for the master's work from an old clay pot to a golden vessel through the power of God's word. Sanctified made useful by uh, for the master's work from an old clay pot to a golden vessel through the power of God's word. To be a faithful servant willing to obey is better than a sacrifice and the Lord dies any day. It's not that he won't love you or use you anyway, but he wants you to be a vessel of gold and not a pot of clay. Sanctified, made useful for the master's work from an old clay pot to a golden vessel through the power of God's word. God's given you his spirit and the image of his son. Everything he's promised you, he's already done. Now you must renew your mind in power and in love. Present yourself acceptable Clean to the Lord above. Sanctified, made useful for the master's work from an old clay pot to a golden vessel through the power of God's word. And that little hippie-looking chick, Janie Grind, and she defined herself as such way back in the day, I think caught the heart of this passage better than a lot of professional scholars who spent so much time arguing Janie's song keys in on one of the greatest needs we have in the modern church. We need to understand that our lives must be more fully yielded to Christ if we have any hope of serving God and serving his people in any meaningful way, we need to be more firmly committed. So we're going to jump into this text and keep in mind Janie has the heart of it because she says our goal is sanctified, made useful from an old clay pot to a golden vessel. We are God's golden vessels, and he wants to do something amazing in our lives. So let's take a look. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. Would you stand? And I will be reading from the English Standard Version today, and we'll let you know uh, some of their word choices I think are are even better than some others. So hear the word of the Lord and please listen carefully. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel of honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. At the simplest understanding of what this this text is about, Paul issued a call to be a vessel of honor to the kingdom of God. Now, I think part of the problem why there are so many different interpretations, they have forgotten one of the principles that Brother Bill likes to remind you guys about a lot when he preaches and teaches, and you could probably get it with me. When he says what is key in importance is context, context, context. Folks have lifted verse 1 out of its context. 
and have called it a parable. Folks, it's not a parable. It just isn't. How do I know that? Because almost as soon as Paul picks up the issue, he drops it. Do you notice he doesn't start talking a whole lot about the vessels after verse 20? What he does is he uses the idea to launch an idea. And he says, in the big house, and I'll grant the big house, he's talking about the church. There are different vessels. And yes, I can make the argument each one of you have a role to play, and I have made it and will continue in the front. But this isn't the context. The heart of this passage, folks, is verse 21. Verse 20 introduces us to the idea of honorable things and dishonorable. Verse 21 says, and you need to be honorable. And verse 22 tells us how we go about doing that. So Paul is saying, you need to serve in a way that will honor the Lord. And our service in the kingdom of God, our lives in the kingdom of God, should bring honor to his name. In today's text, we're going to discover ways our service, our lives, can honor God. And so we jump into it, okay? Get ready. Our very first way of honoring God, we honor God through sanctified lives. This is very, this is crucial. If you don't understand this in the text, you will get nothing else. You will not understand anything else Paul says. You see, Paul is talking to his son in the ministry, and Paul pointed to Timothy, pointed Timothy to the need for holy living. He said, when a believer cleanses himself, and it's very important that you understand, we can't cleanse ourselves on our own. Uh, we are cleansed by the grace of God. But the idea, when a believer turns his heart over to God, when a believer focuses on serving and loving God, God moves and will make him honorable. He will be set apart as holy. And that is a word that literally means, uh, for us to understand it, to the best, best translations, to consecrate or to sanctify. And it draws from the image of the Old Testament. Remember how the, the Hebrew people were told to sanctify every vessel that would be used in the tabernacle or the temple? That they were to sa- uh, sanctify, consecrate the very tent of meeting and the building. Set apart. Now, here's where things get, you need to really listen. Okay? In one sense, we have already been sanctified. We have already been consecrated. We have already been set apart. George Eldon Ladd points, that happened the moment we were justified by grace through faith. And when Paul talks about sanctification, he's talking about this truth. Children, who people who follow Christ are children of God. You're no longer the same. You're different. You've been saved. You've been justified. You are set apart by God. You are the people of God. It is a factual event. It happened the moment you became a child of God, a Christian. But then Paul uses a secondary idea of sanctification found in this text. When Paul says the person who cleanses himself will be sanctified, he is saying they will begin to experience 
the sanctification that they already have in Christ. Positionally, we're God's children. Now we're being told, live like it. Make a conscious decision, a commitment to live like it. Just a couple of texts from Paul. 2 Corinthians 7.1, he told the church at Corinth to purify themselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. In Romans chapter 6, he told the Romans, you need to stop yielding yourselves as slaves to impurity and unrighteousness and wickedness. You need to start yielding yourselves as slaves to righteousness. And the idea is, goes on and on throughout the Word of God. You need to give yourself. So we are already set apart in Christ. And Paul is saying, now, Timothy, set your heart to become the person God wants you to be so that you will become in life, the way you live, a holy vessel before the Lord. And here's where it really gets cheap. You're just great. I love this. If we try to continue the first metaphor, there are vessels of honor, you know, the really, the, the China, all that. If that's, if, if, well, let me just put this. William Hendrickson points out the reality of life just rises above that metaphor that Paul jumps in to discuss cleansing. William Hendrickson said, a cheap plate will always be a cheap plate. You can't pray over a cracked dish and it turn into beautiful china. But God can take a sinner. Fighting his purpose in life touch their hearts, and make them saints. Do you know that's why Paul, that's one of Paul's favorite terms from believers in his writings. Do you notice how often he calls the churches uh, that he's writing to saints? It comes from this word, a word that gives us sanctify. Through the purifying operation of the Holy Spirit drawing us closer to God's side, we become more and more of what we're supposed to be. Holy. And then Paul beautifully gives us, we are given a powerful image of how to become detached from dishonorable things. And there are two things, two commands in verse 22 that picks up with this idea of being set apart, being cleansed. First of all, he says negatively, run away from some stuff. And the word flee means to run fast, run hard. And he says, run, flee Youthful passions in the ESV. Some translations just completely and totally interpret this to be um, sexual sin. The New American Standard, the New Living Translation, King James Version, all translate that phrase, flee youthful lusts. And in our, our ears, lust means one thing, right? Sexual desire. But the ESV has chosen the word passions Some translations just use the word desire. And the truth is that word, most often in the New Testament, it it is talking about sinful desires. But I think there's something more than what is going on. I don't think he's just saying, Timothy, run away from sexual activity that is ungodly. Again, let's keep it in context. He says, run away from these things and run toward these things. Catch a pattern? 
this is what you need to go away from, this is what you need to go to. And I'm going to talk about the positive in just a moment. But I think what Paul is saying, leave the youthful passions that will cause you to walk out of God's will, and here are the things. In other words, they're connected. So let's take a look at what he's saying. By the way, Newt Larson points out that in the first century, uh, the word youth wasn't limited to teenagers. In fact, for most of the Greco-Roman world, uh, there were only two stages. You were young or you were old. That's it. And so the idea here, Timothy is being... Timothy, most scholars believe, is anywhere from 36 to 40 years old at the writing of this. Paul's in Rome. And Timothy is hardly a man who is caught up in youthful, raging hormones. So Paul is saying, you know, there are some attitudes and hearts among those who have not yet matured, who are not yet, they haven't had enough life experience to truly understand. In the Old Testament, those people are talked about as being simple. And it's not talking about being unintelligent. You're just youthful, you're, you're, you're immature, you don't know what's going on. And so youthful desires can point to traits that show immaturity. Gordon Fee says, he's the, uh, Paul is probably talking about passions of you, things like the desire for something new. Have you ever noticed? I remember when I was being told, we were being told a soundbite at you lose a person after a minute on a commercial. Then it can, you lose a person in 30 seconds, and now we lose people in five seconds. If we don't hook you in five seconds, you're gone. Because we want something exciting. We want something new. We want something flashy. It also carries the idea, the youthfulness that, that likes to debate, that, that part of us in that moment in life when we like to debate, we like to get into disagreements that start out friendly, and by the time it's over with, we're screaming and shouting at each other. Our Kent Hughes also points to impatience. Uh, just have curiosity, how many of you, when you were younger, were terribly impatient? Okay, the rest of you can repent. You didn't admit it. Okay. Uh, yeah, patience isn't my greatest suit, but I remember it. I started the countdown to my driver's license at 13. I wanted to drive. But in impatience, it says, I can't wait. I'm not going to sit and listen. I'm going to, I want this. And then harshness. I love it when people talk about how kind children are and how sweet children are and how it, it, it's only as they become adults, they become ugly. I challenge you to look at TikTok, Twitter, any social media, there is a harshness that characterizes the human heart from very early to very late. I think what Paul is really saying here, Timothy, anything that will keep you from being focused on who you are meant to be, run away from. I can't look at this passage and say, oh, well, that doesn't, do, that doesn't call me. No, there are a lot of different passions in my life that can move me away from what God wants me to be. But if I'm supposed to flee that, what am I supposed to run to? Righteousness, which basically means right living, staying on track, integrity, 
justice, mercy, truthfulness. Faith. Here, most of all, counting on the idea of faithfulness. You trust in Christ and you have made commitments and you're going to follow through with that faithfulness. Love. How many sermons on love have you heard, folks? And it's basically acting in the best interests of the other person, wanting them to become all they can be. And then peace. That harmony and unity without which the body of Christ cannot function and cannot accomplish her tasks. These are things we are supposed to pursue with a passion. So by running away from and running to, we learn what it means to be cleansed, to become the person God wants us to be. And so what do we need to do today? What do we need to do? We need to actively move forward in conforming to the life God wants for us. I've got to make a choice. This is what Paul is saying. Timothy, you need to honor God. You need to make that choice. And here's one of those really great moments in time, these little word plays that Paul is so good at using. Uh, it's interesting that he uses the phrase honorable and dishonorable. Uh, if, if you had a son, Timothy, or by the name of Timothy, you may know the word play I'm already talking about. Timothy comes from two great words brought together and his name means honoring God. So Paul is saying, hey, honoring God, honor God. Make the choice, do it. And so each one of us has a call of God to give our hearts to Christ to let us him be all he is meant to be. But did you notice Paul also said, and do it with everybody else who loves the Lord. Folks, you know one of the reasons we're not doing a great job living the lives God wants us to be? Because we think we're spiritual Clint Eastwoods. We don't need anybody's help. And that is about as wrong as you can get. We each have a call to be holy, but we each have a call to godly living together. And what does that mean? Well, we pray for each other. We encourage each other. We connect with each other. And when one of us is forgetting who we are, out of love and compassion, we give gentle reminders. It's time for you to come home. Our lives of service will honor God when they are sanctified. When we are committed to becoming the people God wants us to be. And that gives birth to the next way of honoring. Because if we become the people God wants us to be, then we'll understand that we honor God by our usefulness to the kingdom. We honor God by our usefulness to the kingdom. And I really love this. When Paul is talking to Timothy about this, he, Paul pointed to the reality that a vessel of honor could be used by God for the kingdom. This isn't a maybe what it, God, he's saying you really can be used if you set aside those dishonorable things and live for Christ. Now the word translated useful here is a word that means what is You'll be beneficial to the kingdom of God. You will be the exact vessel that God wants to use, the exact person to become his 
vessel of touching this world. Useful. The best for the job. Useful, good for those around you. Now, this is not the usefulness of using a bread knife for a screwdriver. I'm pretty sure I just caused a couple of men in our congregation to cringe. I remember early on my father saying, use the right tool for the right job. Now, have I used a shoe to drive a tack? I'll let you imagine. But anyway, uh, and ladies, it is not the usefulness of a stapler to fix a hem because you can't find safety pins or needle and thread. No, Paul is saying God will take that cleansed person and use them as a valuable part of the kingdom to do the job he has set out for us to do. And it is his choice what we are called to do. Did you know that's useful for the master? That word master is not the normal one used to talk about Lord in the New Testament. It's uh, kind of a rare word, actually. And it it's depotes. And it gives us our English word despot. Now, in case you don't know that word, dictator. It's normally used of a rather cruel and arbitrary leader. When it's used of Christ, when it's used of our Lord, it's saying this. He is the indisputable master, Lord of the household of faith. So he will decide where he's going to use us, and he'll make us usable. Gary Dimerus said, what more could anyone desire? To be sanctified is to be set apart for God's service. There is no greater calling than this. To be useful for the master is the most noble expression of a basic human need. We can be... And I love this, pulling from earlier in 2 Timothy. We can be Onesiphorus to Jesus himself. That one who came and helped Paul, we can help our Lord. So when we are the people we are meant to be, we can be useful. And that draws a very important truth that we need to see. Character makes a difference. Now, many of you know, um, in my doctoral work, my primary emphasis was systematic theology. I love the doctrines of our faith. I absolutely love them. Back in the back of my mind, someday I've got a a book I want to write for the church that's going to be entitled, Theology is Not a Four-Letter Word. Uh, I love doctrine. My secondary emphasis is as an historian. Now, primarily church history, but I fell in love with history way back in the seventh grade in Biloxi, Mississippi through the teachings of Mr. Cowan at Nichols Junior Junior High. When somebody told me, when I told them who my history teacher was, he's, he's hard. He made me fall in love with history. And so I look at things, both in the distant past and the near present. And I try to understand what's going on. And there was an interesting phenomenon that happened between two ideological entities that could not be further apart, I think. And they happened to be political parties. World of difference between the two. 
But in 1998, the Democratic Party, seeking to defend President Clinton in the time of scandal, was arguing what he does in his personal life doesn't matter. He's doing a good job. Character is irrelevant. Drop this. And Republicans were basically chomping at the bits and foaming at the mouth, stomping. Character does make a difference. And if a man, if a wife can't trust her husband, then why should a country trust that president? On and on. Character doesn't matter. Character matters. Fast forward at 18 years uh, to 2016, the years that followed, and you found Republicans constantly making this argument about Donald Trump. Character doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He's doing a good job. I even heard a preacher, and I cringed at this one, uh, say that we did not elect Donald Trump to be a Sunday school teacher. Obviously, we did not. But what is interesting, Republicans who were so vehemently opposed to Bill Clinton said character is of utmost importance are now saying, no, it's not. And then Democrats who were saying character is irrelevant are all of us saying it's clearly relevant. Now, what fascinates me as a historian, I look at these two groups, and folks, I have served in churches that were equally divided among Democrat and Republican members. I have served in places where everybody was, almost everybody was Democrat. And if you were Republican, you were in the closet. You didn't bring it out, and the vice versa. I've watched the tensions of politics throughout most of my life. What intrigues me about this, Democrat and Republican, did you notice the arguments that they were using completely flip-flopped? In less than 20 years, they're now using the arguments of their enemy from 18 years before. I don't say that. I'm not, my intent is not to bring up pain or discomfort. This is an observation, and it's, it's partly to blame. You can blame Mr. Cowan. You can blame my training, whatever. I'm fascinated by history. Maybe one day somebody will acknowledge, you know what? We kind of did an about face. But I doubt that because in this world, transparency isn't part of the game. Here's what I want to say let you see. The world looks at character when it's expedient, when it will help me get what I want. Almost every election year, I think this is going to be changing in the years to come, but almost every, every election year, candidates talk about God. because the vast majority of us in this country still believe in God. And it's expedient to try to win people who use the God word. So people will use character when it's expedient, and they'll use character when it's a weapon, when we can attack somebody and dismantle everything they say is true by pointing out their flaws. Well, Folks, I'm not talking about the way of the world today. I'm talking to us. We are children of the living God, first and foremost. 
Our primary citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. And that's what the word of God says. And in this passage, as in many more, we need to understand character makes a difference. Will we stumble and fall? Yeah. Nobody does this 100% of the time. Jesus, the only completely sin-free person in all of history. And by the way, the fact that Paul had to tell Timothy, flee youthful passions, indicated he knew that Timothy probably still had some of those things going on in his life that he needed to get rid of. But when we fall, we have a recourse. And it's set up for us in this test, cleansing. Cleanse yourself. Go to God. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we have, as you ask for the cleansing, put your heart on track with what God wants. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, yes, God has used imperfect people. He used Nebuchadnezzar. He used Cyrus the Great. But it's been pointed out, the constant and consistent command of God for his people is that they be holy as he is holy. We see that first in Leviticus 11.45, and Peter quotes it in 1 Peter 1.16. We are called to be holy. And so what do we need to do today in order to become the people God wants us to be in ministry and service? We must acknowledge that our usefulness in God's kingdom is directly related to whom we are called to be. Folks, we're supposed to be the cleansed, useful vessel. We're supposed to be yielding our lives more and more to the kingdom of God every day that we live. And I love what R. Kent Hughes says. What we are is first, second, third, fourth, everything. What we do will come from who we are. And when we're seeking to live for God the way he wants, what we do will be substantial. So we need to be clean before our Lord. We need to be useful. Well, then we will honor God when we are prepared to serve, when we are ready. And Paul says, whenever someone cleanses themselves, here are the points to my sermon. We'll be set apart as holy. He will be useful. He will be ready. Paul said that the cleansing experience by God's experience by God's servants meant they were ready for every good work. As we're seeking to become the people we were intended to be, as God redeemed us and set us apart as holy and said, now I want you to live it, we are ready. And the word ready means you've made preparations. 
You've made preparations. Every good work means any work that will honor God, any work that is good, that is true, that will make a godly difference. So Paul was saying that a person who has been cleansed, a person that has yielded their lives to Christ, who are seeking to live for him, would be ready at all times to be used at the discretion of the master. And only people who are seeking to become the folks God wants them to be will be ready, eager to be used. Robert McChain, a great man of God in days gone by, told a young minister to keep focused on the culture of the inner man. In other words, the heart. And he said, just like a cavalry soldier will keep his saber clean, free from all rust, he says, you are God's sword. And I trust and pray that you will be that instrument of purity. You will be that instrument God can use. And then McShane said this, the most important part of this, his advice. It is not great talents God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. You see, if my life belies everything my words say, why would anyone listen? But if, as the gospel song says, others see Jesus in me, suddenly my testimony becomes more real. Folks, it is time for us to be prepared for every good work. And here on the Mississippi Gulf Coast this time of year, we hear a lot about preparation, don't we? Nobody prepared me quite well enough for cruising the coast this week. But I know we need to be prepared because this is hurricane season. The next one might be a really big one, and it might be headed toward us. So we get ready. For two years now, just about, we have been in a mode of trying to get ready. COVID-19 was on the way, and it was, and now it's here, and your preparation can be the difference between life and death. There are a lot of folks who absolutely believe that we are now in the end times, that Jesus is coming back very soon. This has got to be the last days. And depending on your theological preparation or your persuasion, we are being called upon to be prepared for whatever comes. It's going to happen soon. I can honestly say I'm not certain that we are in the last days. I believe we are. But may I remind you on the day of Pentecost that Peter stood up and preached and said, we're now in the last days. Every generation of saint who has truly been looking for God is to live their lives. This may be the last generation. What I do know, 100% certainty, God is calling us in this text, be prepared. What do I mean? Well, Peter says we need to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within us. We are told we need to be prepared to bear the burdens of brothers and sisters in the Lord. We need to be prepared to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. We need to be prepared to go the extra mile in times of persecution and struggle. We need to be prepared to be peacemakers, 
For Christ said in the Beatitudes, when we are peacemakers, we are the children of God. We need to prepare to love. Love with the love of Christ. Not only those who love us, but we're supposed to love our neighbors, many of which we don't know nowadays. But we are also called to love our enemies. And we know them too well, don't we? To love. And there may come a day when you and I will need to take up our cross and follow Christ to the end. And it's a little bit arrogant to think that of all the nations of the world, persecution could not happen here. So why now? What has changed? What, what is so urgent that we need to be prepared, ready, right now? Why is it we can't afford to wait any longer? Why do we need to get our hearts right with God to be serving God today? And we need to hear that urgency. What has changed? Nothing. Because our call to follow Christ has always carried a sense of urgency. In John 9, 4, Jesus said, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Do you know how what we have guaranteed? Right now. Right now. None of us knows what will happen by the end of today. So we need to be ready right now to be used by God either to touch each other's lives in acts of ministry and kindness or to reach out to a world in acts of ministry. So what do we need to do? What action do we need to take? We have a dire need of committing to a call to serve. We have all been given. Every one of you here, if you are a child of God, if you have received the grace of God in your life, you have been set apart as God, by God as one of his own. You have a call. You have a purpose. We have allowed ourselves to be distracted. We have sometimes in the Western church been seduced into using the standards of success set by the world to determine whether or not a church is successful. We've not taken the call to be cleansed from these things seriously enough. And I believe right now, at this very moment, through his word, God is reaching out to us. And we are being called to be sanctified, made useful for the master's work. This text makes it very clear to me. We are called by God to have lives of service that honor his name. And that will happen when our lives are made holy, when we begin to seek with a greater commitment, Lord, make me into the person I am meant to be. Our service will honor God. 
when we've made useful for the master's purpose, whatever he chooses, and we quit saying, but God, I would rather do that than this. He is the master. We need to be useful. Our hearts will honor God when we are prepared to do the task he lays before us. Today is the day we need to return our hearts to the touch of God. Today is a day we must seek to be useful, ready to serve without hesitation, without question. Today is the time for change. And so I ask, Are you ready to ask God to cleanse you? Are you ready to be honest with God and and admit I've not been what I've been meant to be? And I've allowed my own desires, my own wants to overrule your call in my life. Are you ready to say to God, I need you to cleanse me? Are you ready to leave Excuses behind. God, I'm a nobody. I have nothing to offer. Maybe you're going to pull one out of Moses' box of tricks. I'm a slow speech. Are you ready to say, God, help me? All of the excuses I have used to keep me from doing what you have called me to do, I, I lay these at your feet and I ask you to, to purge them out of my life, to change my heart, to let go of the excuses. Are you ready to let him make the difference in your life so you will be prepared for whatever lies ahead? I hope so. Let me remind you and most of you know my heart. Let me remind you somewhat painfully There are only two answers to these questions. Yes, I'm ready, Lord. I'm ready for you to start the work in me that will make me the minister of the gifts you've given me to the people around me. Yes, Lord, I want to be that person, a vessel of honor, Or the answer is no. And we can catch that in any way we want. We can say, God, I'm, I'm not quite ready. I, I'm, I'm not sure I, I want to do that. But Lord, can you give me a little more time? Well, folks, the only option, if it is not yes, is saying no to God. My prayer for you is that you will join me in a yes.
Move in us, Lord, and change us.